Before I went into ministry, I was a marketing major, so I've studied a lot of commercials. I was raised on TV, so TV is deeply ingrained in my brain. And there's always something that I'll I never forget. How do you, let me see if you were too, and I'll prove it. Are you ready? How do you spell relief? Jeez, isn't that embarrassing? How commercials stick in you? R-O-L-A-I-D-S. I don't want to know that, but it, it is going to fit with what I'm saying. How do you spell Easter? You don't spell Easter E-G-G-S. You don't spell Easter S-U-G-A-R. Here's how you spell Easter. Are you ready? T-I-A-T. So how do you spell Easter? And you're probably saying, what in the world does that even mean? This past, actually, a couple, couple weeks ago, I went down, to, went down to Alabama to meet my, uh, just stay with some of my cousins. I have one cousin, he's crazy, and he often would wear a wristband with T-I-A-T on it, and we said, what does that mean? And he said, well, when life is tough, when you're going through a difficulty, or when you are in a pit, just tell yourself T-I-A-T. Well, why? Stands for this is a test. This is a test. And the idea is when, when you are going through something, you don't think you can make it, or it doesn't seem to have make any sense, or life just is confusing, just tell yourself, T-I-A-T, this is a test. And today, we're going to study about a test that um, is what Easter is all about. But i got to kind of preface it a little bit. If you notice, if this, is, this spells Genesis. And if you haven't been to our church since today, we have been going through the book of Genesis since September, October. Jared and I sat down, and we looked at the whole Genesis study. So what we do is we take a section of Scripture, and we say it's this day, this day, this day. And as we are going through it, we noticed that Genesis 22 landed on this day, right, Jared? And we were both like, hmm, coincidence? Or does God know what he's doing? And I think God knows what he's doing. And I think God has put Genesis 22 to today because it's a test for you. And you'll see what I mean. If you don't know what Genesis 22 is, it's incredible. This is incredible. So are you ready to think? All right, Jared, bring this band back up here. Are you ready to think? Because we are told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind. Our mind. And he gives us the word of God to think. And so we are going to enter the test. Genesis 22, 1 through 15. And here it is. Verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And this is actually going to be the very last test of Abraham's life. This is the most, I would say, important moment in Abraham's life. And this is really the last time we really are going to talk significantly about Abraham. And so here is the test. Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. 
Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and he said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountains of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called Abram from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and have not withhold your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. We begin in verse 1. This is a test. God is going to test Abraham. And when you hear the word test, when I say the word test, I am sure what comes to your mind is either chemistry or biology class or you know, algebra class, and you take a test, you remember all of this stuff, and then you regurgitate it on the test, you hand it in, you get a grade, and you hope the grade is good. If it's bad, eh. If it's good, hey, that's good. Because there will always be other tests. A test is a test is a test. But that's not what this test is. A biblical test is different. I was thinking of a good word. Instead of test, what would be a good word for test? And the only word I could really think of is God's gauntlet. A gauntlet is something that he puts you through that by the end, either you're going to survive or not. And if you survive, you are going to be different. You're going to be different. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 20, the word for test means that God is going to put an event in your life that will cause you to fear Him. So a test is supposed to be transformational. 
In Deuteronomy 8.2, it says God tests His people in order to reveal what's actually in their heart. God knows what's in your heart. He always knows what's in your heart, but you don't know what's in your heart. The Bible says our hearts are deceitful above all things. And there are some of you that really believe you know God because you get dressed up on Easter. And you sing really loud on Easter, so of course you got to be a believer. But are you sure? Are you sure you really know God? And so what God does is He will give a test to reveal what really is inside. And that's what's going to happen today. And then it says in Deuteronomy 13.3, God tests His people to see if they truly love Him. It's an issue of loyalty. So a test will... Bring the fear of God in you. The test will show, it's like it'll push down and see what's inside. And the test will say, who do you really love? I like what uh, this writer Fleming Rutledge said about the test of Abraham. And she applied it to what a true biblical test is. And listen to what she writes. A true biblical test, like God's gauntlet, is a demonstration of faith so extreme that a person must be an active participant in it, not just one who stands aside while God works. It is a once and for all event showing us that God can be trusted even in unimaginable darkness. Can you imagine having to be asked by God to kill your son? I want you to notice two things from this definition. Number one, biblical a biblical test calls for active faith. There are some issues in life that are so important you can't just say you believe it. You've got to do something about it. That's why in James it says, faith without works is dead. In other words, if you really believe something, you'll act as if it's true. You don't just stand there and say, yeah, I believe that, and then act completely different. I don't know why we came up with this Christianity thing that says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, I don't want to live like Christ. Second thing this says is a biblical test is pivotal. It's life-altering. It's a moment where God brings a crossroad in your life, and you've got to make a choice. And the truth of the matter is, a non-choice is a choice. It's that desperate of a situation. So, here's the test. Are you ready? We're going to talk about Abraham's test. Abraham's test, I've put an engineering paper because I know guys don't like words, so we're going to have pictures with like your engineer motif. And this is test number one. Test number one happened in 1900 B.C. That's 2,000 years before Christ actually came. That's 4,000 years ago. Why in the world are we talking about a test that happened 4,000 years ago? Well, we'll see. Maybe just we got nothing better to do in church. You're supposed to do that. Talk about stuff that doesn't mean anything. Anyhow, let's see. This test has four items. These four items are really important. In verse 2, this test includes a sun. In verse 2, this test includes a mountain. And in verse 3, this test includes wood. And in verse 2, this test includes an offering. So here's the test. It's very strange. Abraham is to take his son up a mountain, 
carrying wood and have them sacrificed there. Why? How can the death of Abraham's son help anybody? That's what we need to figure out. The only way we can figure out is by looking at, there's different clues as we learn the specifics. So meaning is found in the clues. And hopefully we can find some meaning because it's kind of strange to ask a guy to kill your son who's a mere human who can't die for anybody. I mean, Isaac's a sinner just like me. So let's go through this. And I want you to, as we go through this, I just personally want to say in my observations as I'm studying this, this is a very odd test. It just doesn't seem to accomplish much. You'll see what I mean. So we begin with the sun. I want you to notice the language in verse 2. Because the Hebrew language, it was the original language, is pretty important. It begins, it says, then God said, take your son. And that word take in the Hebrew has a um, connotation that God is pleading with Abraham. He's not cold and calculating. He's kind of like, Abraham, listen, just trust me. Please, I beg you, just take your son. One commentator said the Hebrew participle na is being used here. Each time it is used in the Old Testament, God asks the individual he's talking to to do something staggering, something that defies rational explanation. It's a clear indication that God knows how important this is and the magnitude it is for Abraham. So God is asking him to do something irrational, and he's saying, just trust me. I know it doesn't make sense, but trust me. Has God ever asked you to do something that sounds irrational? Where the normal person thinks you are crazy, but you know God wants you to do it. He asked me to believe that a guy rose from the dead. That's crazy. Anyhow, let's keep reading. This verse in verse 2 says, Take your son, your only son. He says that three times. Now here's why this is kind of odd to me, because that's not his only son. Did you know that Isaac has an older brother named Ishmael? Why in the world would he say, take your son, your only son, Isaac? Isaac isn't the only son. That just Doesn't God know he's got another brother? And then he says, the son that you love. Take your son, your only son, the son that you love. Actually, in the Hebrew, it's written kind of, it's supposed to be pedantic. It's supposed to be read like this. God, Abraham, please, take your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, and go to Moriah. This is a huge deal. The significance is clear. Isaac, in the mind of Abraham, is always the son of the promise. He's the tangible proof that there's hope. That there's hope he's going to have kids and more kids and more kids, as many as the sand and the sea, and he's supposed to kill his hope? Over the course of his life, Abraham's come up to a lot of these gauntlets. First, when he was, oh, asked to leave his father's house, he's asked to kill his past. Leave your father's house and just go to a land. Where? Just trust me. Then... He, was, he had to go to Egypt and he gave his wife to Pharaoh and another person. So in a way, he had to kill his present hope. And then now he's asking to kill his future hope. That's really what faith is, is to believe God enough that if he asks you to give something up, 
to cut something off, things that matter immensely to you, you will trust him and say, okay. So if God asks you to give up the past, like let's say drinking with your friends every Friday and Saturday night, you know, you go drinking and dress up really cool like you're going to hook up with somebody because you think you're really cool. And you know it's really not doing you any good. And let's say God said, why don't you give that up? Would you do it? Oh, you know how hard that is? Yeah, I do. Let's say God asks you to give up things that are ruining your life in the present. Maybe it could be a relationship that's killing you. Maybe your job is making you, causing you to make compromises and God says, will you give the present up for me right now and trust me? Maybe God is asking you to give up your future. You know, if I believe in you, God, you know how many people are not going to want to be my friend anymore? The next thing we find on this test is a mountain. The mountain's name is Moriah. It is a mountain that is located. It's interesting where it's located. It's located in a region of Israel where a pretty important city lies. Jerusalem lies where Moriah is. The meaning of the word Moriah has a few interpretations, but most scholars believe it has the idea of this mount is going to give us vision or it's going to help us to see clearly. That's what the word Moriah means. Verse 14 of this chapter 22, we learn that Moriah is designated as Jehovah's mountain. Yahweh, this is Yahweh's mountain. That's the idea that this is where God's presence dwells. It's Yahweh's mountain. This is His. And later, it's very interesting, on this mountain in 2 Chronicles 3.1, Solomon's temple is built. Solomon's temple is the place where they sacrificed offerings, and it's also where they had the mercy seat. You know where you go into the tabernacle, and once a year the priest has the incense, and he goes in there and brings the blood of the atonement, and pours it on the mercy seat, so all the sins will be forgiven. Very interesting. The significance, though, is clear here in this passage. And we find it in Isaiah and Zechariah. Moriah has been, Mount Moriah has been and always will be God's holy place. His specifically designated place that he has chosen for the nations to come and stream to according to Micah 4.1. They will stream to this mountain. Then we have wood. This is actually the strangest part of the story if you think about it. Before they set out, before they set out, look at verse 3, watch what it says. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. I, you know what, for some reason, it's interesting that they're riding to Moriah, Jerusalem on a donkey. Anyhow, I don't know if that means anything. Anyhow, early the next morning, Abraham got up, saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out. So Abraham cuts wood before they leave. Why doesn't he wait to get the wood when he gets to Moriah? Why does he prepare the wood before? It's just kind of strange. Like when I go camping, and we usually go to those campsites where you have to buy wood, you know, you got to give them your credit card and give half of your life to buy one load of wood. You've been there. So my wife and I, we prepare the wood before we go, and it takes up so much room in, in where we're going. Why doesn't I'm sure that took a lot of room on the donkey and everything. Why did he have to cut the wood before? Then what's really interesting is 
Look at uh, verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son. He took the wood, he placed it on his son, his son puts the wood on his back and carries it up a hill in the area of Jerusalem. Kind of weird story. Some of you are wondering, how could a young boy, why would he let a young boy carry wood up a mountain? According to the biblical account, Isaac about this time was probably around 30 years old. You can find it in the next chapter. His mom dies when she's a certain age, 125, so that makes him about 37. So some scholars think he's from the ages in between about 30 to 37. Hmm. So Abraham prepared the wood. The father prepared the wood. The son carried the wood. And it took three days for everything to be finished. Huh. Okay, let's just keep going. Significance of this found in verse 6. They wanted up the, verse 5 actually. They wanted to go up to God's mountain so the father and son could worship there alone. Next thing is an offering. This is the most important part. It's the whole point. They wanted to offer a burnt sacrifice in worship. But it seems to fall apart here, and this is what I mean. It doesn't seem to make sense. As Isaac notes, he says in verse 7, we, don't we need a lamb for the burnt offering? We need a lamb for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is the offering that's consumed completely in fire to pay for the sins of the person making the offering. So you needed a lamb. Why did you need a lamb? Because a lamb is spotless and it's considered innocent. So you needed somebody who was spotless and innocent to be burnt holy. It's called a holocaust. That's what holocaust means, is a full burnt offering. And it's supposed to be a lamb. And even Abraham recognizes that. Verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. Okay, so... You get to the story. Verse 9, they reached the place. Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood. And then he bound his son Isaac. Where's the lamb? You wonder, if let's say Isaac was 30, why didn't he resist? Why did he say, not my will, Father, but yours be done? I don't know. Uh, so they put him on top of the wood, and then... Abraham went to strike his own son, crush his own son. He took the knife to slay his own son. The angel of the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, you don't need to do it. Don't lay a hand on the boy and don't do anything to him. Now that I know, what's the test? That you fear God, you believe, you trust him. So, verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he found a ram. Wait, not a lamb, a ram. It's not a lamb, it's a ram. Some scholars have noted that in the atone, a ram is, is offered in the atonement later on in the book of Leviticus, which is for the whole nation. But if you notice in verse 14, Abraham knows that's not satisfactory, so that's why he said, Abraham called that place the Lord will provide, as if he will provide a proper sacrifice, as if the ram wasn't proper. And to this day it is said, and Moses wrote this part, and he's writing it saying, and to this day, the day that I'm writing it, which is a lot later than this, he says, even to this day, on the mountain, 
It will say the place where the Lord will provide. So even Abraham, or Moses, who wrote this, is looking forward to something, a day when a lamb will be provided. So in a way, you could say, this is kind of odd. You know, I would say it like this, that as far the way it looks, the way it looks to me is it wasn't fully... So he was supposed to kill his son, but he didn't kill his son, so he really didn't do the full test, did he? It's as if it wasn't quite completed. It's, you know, the story reminds me of I do a lot of weddings. And so what they'll, you have a wedding usually on a Saturday. So Friday night, you'll go through the procedures of the wedding, which look an awful lot like the wedding. You say almost the same things, but it's not fully consummated. So in a way, it's not really a wedding, but it is kind of a wedding because it looks like the wedding, but it's not the, this kind of reminds me of that, kind of like a rehearsal. Wonder why. If it's not completed. So the first one, how could Abraham's test be over? How could Abraham be over if the task really wasn't done? Well, the angel seems to think it is. Look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you've done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. Why in the world would the angel say, okay, so it's an angel, right? It says the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says, I swear by myself, and then it says the angel declares the Lord. So this angel's the Lord. This angel's the Lord. This is, the, this is Jesus, pre-incarnate, saying, Abraham, you're okay. It's going to be taken care of. And you've done all that I've asked you to do. So what did he ask Abraham to do? According to James, James said, Abraham passed the test because he exercised active faith. He believed. And he believed by showing he was willing to do what was required. A faith that proved that he feared God. It also revealed how much he loved God. He passed the test. But then that goes to the second question. But a lamb was promised. If a lamb was promised, where is it? Because God never lies. You just can't say a ram will do. God's not like that. If you're going to do the sacrifice right, you need a lamb. God never gets sloppy in his details. What's going on? And then you've got to ask one more question. This is on a more practical level. What in the world does this have to do with Easter? happened 4,000 years ago. What does this have to do with Easter? Abraham and Isaac, what in the world does this have to do with Easter? I am glad you asked. Because there is another test. And this is test two. And just like this test, this one, God's son, this happened 33. I put C-E because I didn't want to say A-D because A-D would give the story away. So I put C-E, current era. But just like the first test, there's some items in this test. And these items are really important. Listen to what the items are. There's a sun, or should I say the sun. There's a mountain, there's some wood, and there's an offering. Huh. This test is also a strange thing. God takes his son and sacrifices him on top of a mountain. But why? Again, the details will spell out the significance. First of all, the Son. Let's go to the New Testament. I want you to go to the book of Mark. 
And I want you to notice the wording of the Son the first time He really appears on the earth for the purpose of which He's been sent. He's about the age, I would say at this time, around 30. Mark chapter 1 and verse 11. And so He goes to show Himself and uh, He gets baptized. And then when He gets baptized, watch what happens. This is Mark chapter 1 and verse 10. We'll begin in verse 10. And God's words matter. Remember, he's very specific. Mark 1 verse 10. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him. So the, what you're going to see is this is a Trinitarian example. God the Father is involved, the Son and the Spirit. But the heavens open, it's split open, and a voice comes down. It's the voice of the Father. And listen to what the voice of the Father says about the Son. You are my Son, whom... I love. Go to John, two books to the right. And the reason why it's important is I want you to learn, I want you to see what Scripture says, not what I say. John 1, verse 14. John 1, verse 14 the Word became flesh. That means God, the Son, became flesh, put on flesh, made His dwelling among us. That means He lived with us on earth. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, only Son. And in John 3.16, look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. Whosoever believes in Him shall not perish. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? That phrasing, one, only Son, and whom you love. This is a huge deal. The significance is clear. Just as it was Abraham, Isaac was Abraham's hope, Jesus is the Father's hope for you. He's the Father's in a way, you could say it like this. The reason why I believe that Genesis 22 sounded like a rehearsal is because it's to point to the reality, which is this person. In the same way that Abraham and Isaac look forward to the one and only Son, we look back on the one and only Son and what He did for us. And what did He do? Well, He went to a mountain. That's the next thing. He went to a mountain. In the first story, Isaac is taken to Moriah mountain which is located in the region of Israel. And you know what? Jesus is taken to Moriah. The same exact place. But the name has been changed. It's called Golgotha. The place of the skull. The darkest place on earth. The vision, what we're supposed to see in Moriah, is death. God died on His mountain. The significance is clear because Jesus himself hints at the purpose of why he died at his mountain. In Luke 23, when he's up on the mountain, he finally gets up to the mountain, and when he's up on the mountain getting ready to die, we heard this Friday. Do you know what he said when he's up on the mountain getting ready to die? Father, forgive them! That's the significance of his death, is forgiveness for everything you've done. 
He died for you. That's why we bring into the wood. Wood was involved in well. A cross of wood was involved as well. A cross of wood. What's fascinating in John 19, 17, Jesus said he's going to carry the wood himself. He wanted to do it. John 10, 18 says, not only do I lay down my life on my own, I'm going to also take it up again. This is all the work of the Son. This is all the work of the Father. The Father planned and prepared the wood before the foundation of the earth. He planned and prepared it. You can read that in 1 Peter chapter 1. And the Son took it. The Son carried out the will of the Father. He could have resisted. He's old enough, but he said, not my will. The manner of this death was strategic. It needed to have wood because according to the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who dies on wood or on a tree. Cursed is he. What does that mean? The one who's innocent becomes sin for us. He didn't know sin, but he came sin for us so that we who are sinful might become the righteousness of God in him. So the significance of Jesus carrying his own cross is perfectly explained in Isaiah when he says, my own arm works salvation. He did it all. He did it all. The Father prepared the wood, the Son took the wood. And how dare you think that you did anything to deserve salvation? There's this big debate, are we saved by works or faith? After you have faith, you work, but you don't work to get faith. Because Jesus did everything. Abraham didn't have to do anything. All he had to do was believe. So what is the work he did is he was the offering. You could say it like this. The question is still looming. Where is the lamb? Didn't he say, the, I'll provide a lamb? Where is the lamb? That is why the words in John 1.29 are so important. Go to John 1.29. I want you to see them for yourself. John 129. This to me is amazing. So remember when Jesus got baptized, but right before he got baptized, he's getting ready to walk into the water, and John the Baptist, the one that was sent ahead to point out the one we should be looking for, saw Jesus walking to the water, and look at verse 29. Then the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, look. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There He is! He's the Lamb. Jesus is the burnt offering. And remember, the burnt offering is for sin. A sacrifice to pay for our sin. And it is burnt, completely consumed. And you might say, no, I don't, where's the fire? I didn't see any fire. Fire is a metaphor for wrath. Wrath is a lot worse than being burnt by fire. I was watching on the news the other day in the Philippines. They like to, you know, crucify people. They actually nail them to the cross. It's supposed to be in homage to Jesus. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Jesus alone took the full wrath of God. That means the eternal punishment for your sins on the cross. He was consumed for you. Don't play some silly charade. It wasn't a charade. 
He was the Holocaust. So he went through the more intense fire. He received the wrath of God. That's why it says God himself provided the lamb. A lamb of innocence, of purity, to be our substitute. What's interesting, it took three days for it to be finished and complete. Because on the third day, he uh, rose again to prove that God is satisfied. You could say it like this, the resurrection's the receipt of the Father saying it's been paid in full. So what are the results of the test? Now that the test is finished, what are the results? They, they correspond. You can take Abraham and test two together because both of these tests point to the same thing. You can read it in Hebrews 11. I have it up on the screen, but look at what Hebrews 11 says. This is incredible. Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. Huh. Here's what he means by that. So here, God tells Abraham, he said, I want you to go walk to Moriah and it's going to take you three days. The moment Abraham heard that, the moment he knew his son was dead. So in his mind, he went because he reasoned somehow, God promised to me, my son is going to be the hope of, he's going to have generations after him and God told me to kill him so... There's only one answer. God's going to have to raise him from the dead. So he believed, and he went to the mountain. He even put him on the wood. He raised the knife, and when the angel said, Stop! Isaac was resurrected. He did receive Isaac back from the death. How does that apply to us? Number one, true faith. True faith, real faith, faith that passes the test, you could say it like that, believes God can raise the dead. Do you believe God can raise the dead? Do you believe really that Jesus died for you and rose again from the grave? That's the gospel. Do you believe that? That he was consumed by God's wrath because of you. Do you believe that? And then the second thing is true faith. True faith will not hold back what is most precious because it believes God's promises. That means Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac even though he didn't want to sacrifice Isaac. It was his life. He was willing to give up his life because he trusted God's word more. Are you willing to give up what you think is life even though you know God doesn't want you to have that because he wants you to trust him. But if I trust him, he's going to make my life boring. Then you don't love him. In a way, Easter is your test. Not T-I-A-T, T-I-A-Y-T. If you really believe that God can raise the dead, isn't it time to stop holding back and give God your life? I can remember the moment for me. I'll, I'll explain it to you. I'll, I can remember it. I was sitting in a car on the road. My life was crashing in on me. And I knew, I knew either I've got to believe in Jesus or I've got to just give up the whole thing. 
But here's what I knew. I knew two things. If I believe in Jesus, if I really accept Christ as my Savior, I got to stop playing this religious game. Do you know what the religious game is? I go to church and I ask for forgiveness knowing I'm going to do the same garbage I did a whole week before that. That's the religious game. I knew if I come to Christ, I got to start believing this and living it. I got to live this. Or the other crossroad is it's all a sham. And if it's all a sham, my life means nothing. I, I, one of the things that really provoked me to start thinking like this is I was going to a church where a priest had all these college kids. You might have heard the story, but it was pivotal, so that's why I tell it. All of these college kids were talking about hell. Is hell real? Half the college kids said, no, God's the God to love you. wouldn't send anybody to hell. And half of the class said, but Jesus talks about hell. So we looked at the priest. We said, what do you think? Do you think hell's real? And the priest smiled and he said, don't worry about it. It's not that big a deal. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, it's not that big a deal? Hell? Being punished for all eternity is not that big a deal? Is there anything else more important? And so I said, either that's true or it's not. And if it's not, you know what my destiny is? Uh, six feet and being maggot food. That's, that's all I'm good for. But I knew in my heart that there's... there's I'm, I'm, I, I love people. I want my mom, my dad to live forever. There's more to this life than worm food. crazy. Remember last week I told you about my cousin Steve and how my sister called him and three days ago my brother called him and was able to talk a long time about the gospel. Steve died last night at 8 o'clock last night. My cousin. So when you come to this decision you either say it's a joke and I'm just going to give up this whole religion facade and I'm just going to or I'm going to go be hot for Christ. But here's the problem with most Christians. They believe there's a middle lane. I would say 90% of Christians believe there's a middle lane. I can be a Christian and I don't have to do anything for Jesus. I don't have to live like him. I don't have to do nothing. I just have to go to church on Christmas and Easter. That's all I got to do. And I'm good because I cry sometimes at Christian songs on the radio. I even went to see that I can only imagine show and I cried at the end. I must be a good guy. Really? So this is your test. If you believe God can really raise the dead and he can raise you, live this book. If you don't believe it, quit the show, quit the game.